But Father, we pray tonight over this word and over this whole series that we're going to be doing on the communion table and also Hebrew roots. And Lord, I pray, if you would, brother, if you could bring maybe the mic down just just a tiny bit, a little hot. Lord, I pray tonight that you would come upon me, anoint me fresh. And Lord, that there would just be an envelopment of your spirit. And Lord, that you would speak through me your words tonight, what you want spoken. And Lord, it's only by your Holy Spirit that we can really understand the deeper things. And and Lord, I pray that the precious Holy Spirit of God would begin, whoever's hearing this, you may be driving down the road, as people podcast these, wherever you are, Lord, I pray tonight, let the Holy Spirit just begin to envelop everybody that's listening to this series. And, and Lord, anoint our minds to be able to perceive Lord, anoint our eyes and ears to be able to see and hear what you want us to see and hear. Anoint our hearts, our emotions, that the the realm of our hearts and our, our inner spirit, man, all of that, that there would be, we would be good fertile soil for what you're wanting to do. The Bible talks about the parable of the seed and the sower. Lord, that you would speak through me your words of life, rhema tonight. And it will go out as living seeds of truth sown into good, fertile soil of hearts and minds that are made ready by the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit would water those seeds of truth in people and in families and in ministries and cause that, Lord, to take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. And, Lord, that your word will go out as the washing of the water of the word and cleanse. Let the light of your truth shine forth and dispel all the darkness... Y'all agreeing with me tonight about this? Lord, dispel all the darkness, all the lies of the enemy, all the deception. Lord, all the pet doctrines, um, things that are set up in people's minds that it, they may really think it's a certain way, but in actual fact, it's not that way. And Lord, that your light of truth would come in and just dispel any of that and bring revelation, bring truth of your word. And, Lord, that your word will be a mighty hammer that breaks down every stronghold and a sword of the Lord that cuts away what needs to go. And literally, the sword of the Spirit come through and just penetrate every place that, that your word needs to go. And, Lord, let, your, let there be a mighty anointing. Let the winds of the Spirit carry these, this word, uh, this whole series, really, everywhere it's supposed to go. And let your holy angels watch over your word. The Bible says you're careful to watch over your word to perform it. And so, Lord, we thank you for it. We bless you in Jesus' mighty name. All right, y'all ready? This is going to be a good, a good night. All right, so I want to say this up front. I really recommend that people that are hearing this, that this is new to you, that after you listen to this series, that you also go to our website and listen to the series called The Priesthood of the Believer because it will complement this series and there's things that are covered in the priesthood of the believer that's not going to be covered here and vice versa. So they, it, they would really complement one another tremendously. So I recommend that. All right. I'm going to show you guys some things out of the tabernacle. You see that picture there of that priest that is standing before the golden altar and there's that incense going up. I want you to keep your mind on the tabernacle tonight. And Christopher, if you could hand me that menorah, I'd really appreciate it. All right. I'm going to give you guys an illustration for those that, thank you, brother. For those that are going to be hearing this and you're not watching this, I want you just to use your imagination, okay? Or you could even Google 
a um, lampstand that was in Moses' tabernacle. But the lampstand that was in the tabernacle of Moses, and later they were lampstands that were in the temple, it is a seven-branch lampstand, and it's symbolic of an olive tree. And so tonight, I'm going to show you some things about God's lampstand, and I'm going to lay some groundwork for where we're going in this whole series. So if you could look this way at this lampstand, I'm going to do my best, okay, to hold this up here and do this. Anyway, at the bottom, you see the base here? I want you to picture this base where I have my hands being the root system of the tree. This root system goes back to Abraham. This middle branch here, that's the centerpiece of the whole lampstand, this is Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. All right? And so, if you could use your imagination with me just for a moment, I want you to picture that on this side, this will be my right, but it will be your left, on this side here, that this was from Abraham to Jesus Christ, this was the years, that's 2,000 years, but really, more, I'm more speaking of the time of the law, the 1,500 years of Moses, but this was before Jesus Christ, okay? And then... Jesus came, the centerpiece, and on the other side of it, now you have the last 2,000 years, what we know as the church age. All right, so the first revelation I want to show you is, is that Abraham is, the covenant God made with Abraham was the root system and is the root system. And out of that root, Jesus has been described as a branch. Okay, he's the one that comes up out of that root system And he fulfills the prophecies. Now, before Jesus came and died on the cross, there was, because of the law of Moses and all that, you see that there's three branches here. All right, there was basically two Jews for every Gentile that was in this tree. And the reason for that was because at that time, um, the law of Moses was in fact, you know, intact rather. And so you have basically two. Jews for every one Gentile, but there was always a group of Gentiles that had connected with Israel throughout that whole time that were a part of God's people. So you have that, and then Jesus came and he died on the cross. Once that happened, the unbelieving Jewish people were branches that were broken off of this tree and removed. And the Gentiles were engrafted into this. And so now, on the other side of Calvary, you have two Gentiles for every one Jew. Does that make sense? Do you see the sovereignty of God and how awesome God is in all of that? So the 2,000 years before Calvary, you basically had two Jews for every one Gentile. But now on the other side of Calvary, because the nation of Israel rejected Christ by and large, you have two Gentiles for every Jew. And this is a symbol of also God's holy word. Let me show you this. In Exodus 25, verse, well, let me read John 15 and the the scriptures I have here. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we've got to be in that vine. We've got to be engrafted into that olive tree. 
Jesus is that branch. We've got to be connected to him. Amen? There's no other way. All right, the second thing is, when it's talking about the Jewish people, by and large, the overwhelming majority of them rejecting Christ, Romans eleven seventeen says, if some of the branches have been broken off, and this was Jewish people that rejected Christ, and you, he's speaking to Gentiles, though you are like a wild olive shoot, have been engrafted in among the others, and now you share in the nourishing sap of the olive root. And that root system goes back to Abraham. So now, here's the word of God. In Exodus 25, verse 31, the Bible says, Make a lampstand of pure gold and hammer out its base and shaft and make, it, make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. So this is really interesting if you can look this way. This does not have that in there, but use your imagination. What they did was they had these little cups and buds and blossoms that looked like little flowers that would open up through these branches. And on each branch, you had these, and so the total, if you counted the cups, the buds, and the blossoms on every branch, you counted all of them, you would get to exactly 66. And what's interesting about that is if you count the middle branch, and you go from the middle branch, you count those, and go to the right, you have exactly 39. There's exactly 39 books in the Old Testament. And if you count on the left of that, you count these three branches, there's exactly 27, and there's 27 books in the New Testament. And altogether, it totals the 66 books that God has given us in his holy word. Isn't that awesome? So from the very beginning, God was prophesying that there would be a holy Bible, his word for us today. So the lampstand also speaks of God's word. And what God's word, the way that we receive God's word is two different ways. Number one, we receive his word as what's called logos in the Greek. The logos is just simply what you read. For example, if you grabbed a Bible tonight and sat down and just randomly opened the Bible and started reading, you're going to read about things that have happened in times past. You may read about how Moses you know, lifted his rod and parted the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went across, and you're reading that, that is the logos of God. But there's another Greek word called the rhema. And the rhema is the speaking word of God. It's what God is actually saying to us today. For example, God has spoken to me to preach this sermon tonight. So this sermon is a rhema word because it is what the Holy Spirit is actually saying to us right now in River of Life tonight. The rhema word can come through a prophetic word. But here's the thing about the rhema word. What God is currently speaking will never, ever contradict what he has already spoke in the logos. And another thing about the lampstand is you'll notice that there is seven branches. And so... The sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Let me read it to you in Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit these names. The Spirit of the Lord. And then it says the Spirit of wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. 
Because, see, you read, you have to know the Old Testament to understand the New, really. And that's where a lot of different um, sermons and things have missed it because they're just trying to, to preach just New Testament, but you're not really fully going to understand the New Testament unless you go back to the roots, the shadows and types of the Old Testament. So Revelation 1.4, this is a good example. John said to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who before God's throne. So see, there's not seven different Holy Spirits. How many of y'all, how many of y'all know there's not seven different Holy Spirits running around out there, okay? There's one Holy Spirit. But he, see, people would not understand this unless you go back to the Old Testament and see. So this middle branch right here, Jesus, this middle branch, the Holy Spirit, see, there would be little flames of fire on each top up here. You'd have seven flames. That middle flame is the Holy Spirit coming as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Jesus, if you will. And then, but he also, when he comes, he can come in this way. He can come as the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And when he comes in his fullness, when the Holy Spirit really comes in his fullness, he's going to come with that sevenfold manifestation of his presence where he's not only coming as the spirit of wisdom and revelation, but he's also coming as the spirit of, of might, that power. And he comes with the fear of the Lord where people are convicted of sin. He's going to come in his fullness. And see, if you were in the, the tabernacle and you had turned toward the table of showbread, the lampstand would be right behind you. And if you knelt down and you were at that table, the light, the only light in the holy place was this menorah, but that light would shine over your shoulders and would illuminate what's in front of you. And that's what the Holy Spirit will do. When you're studying the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will shine His light and help you to understand the Word of God. So this is the revelation of the lampstand. Now this might make a little bit more sense as I go through and explain some things about the communion table and the connection with the lampstand. The lampstand, let me say one more thing, also represents churches. That's why it talks about Jesus walking among the lampstands. So picture John seeing this vision and he sees Jesus standing there in his glorified form and he's walking and around him are lampstands that are kind of floating. And he saw, John saw Jesus walking among the lampstands. What that represents, the lampstands are supposed to be the church. Because the church should be a lampstand that is bringing the revelation of God's word and his power. See, what's happening tonight is that in this place, as we've come into worship, and now I'm up here preaching, the word of God is going forth like light. The word of the Lord shines forth. And tonight, you, you are being fed by the Word of God, but also the Spirit of God. So the lampstand is in this place, symbolically. All right. Now, there's a strong connection with this lampstand and with the communion table. So on the next page, Revelation 2.4, Jesus says this. He says, but I have this against you 
that you have left your first love. Now, in the Greek, first love is translated, and you can look this up. Because, see, a lot of people don't know this. I didn't know this till I saw it. It's translated supreme love feast, and it speaks of the communion table. I do believe, symbolically speaking, I'm sure it does speak of, like, getting lukewarm or or falling away from that, that first love of zeal for the Lord and all that. But this is speaking of, though, in the Greek, your supreme love feast. And so it has to do with the communion table. And verse 5 says, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now that's interesting. Just look this way. We'll go through the rest of it here in a moment. So the Lord says, if you neglect the communion table, you're in danger of losing your lampstand. Now that's an interesting scripture because we know that the lampstand speaks of God's power. So I want you to do something. Go back to page one and look at that picture there of the priest burning the incense. And I want you to notice a couple things. All right, this is inside the tabernacle. They rolled back the curtain so you can see. On your far right, you have the Ark of the Covenant. You see the two angels facing each other, and where that glow is, that's where the glory was in the Ark. And right where that glow is, there's a a seat there called the Mercy Seat, and it represents God's throne. Then you go left, and you see the priest burning incense at the golden altar. And then you see, below that, on the left and right, you see the lampstand and you see the table of showbread. And those things are in the holy place. So the ark is by itself in the holy of holies. Then there's a curtain. And then in the holy place, you see those three objects. So I want you to picture, if you were to lay back a person, symbolically speaking, of course, if you were to lay them back onto the tabernacle, where their head was where this um, Ark of the Covenant is. So picture drawing a person in here. The head is going to be where the Ark is. Then you go down, and the heart would be where this golden altar of incense is. That's where the person's heart would be. And then their right hand would be where the lampstand is, and their left hand would be where the table of showbread is. Does this make sense? And then those that are familiar with the tabernacle, you go down further and where the belly is, that's where the laver would be. All right. So here's the way it works. The Ark of the Covenant is where the head is. That's where we pray. And the Bible says, if you will acknowledge me in all of your ways, I will direct your paths. That's where we spend time with God and God speaks to us and directs our paths. He gives us wisdom. He leads us. But now from the head you come down to the heart. And I'm going to come back to this later at the end of the sermon. Our hearts are supposed to be this golden altar of incense. What they would do is they would go from the outside where they burned the animals and they would take a hot coal and they would bring that in and they would put it there on that golden altar. So you have this red hot coal. And they would take incense that they had made. There was four parts to the incense they would grind it up into a powder 
And that priest would sprinkle the incense on that hot coal, and it would go up before God as worship. And so the incense represents today this. Our hearts are supposed to be on fire for God. Our hearts are supposed to be burning for Him like a hot coal. And out of a burning heart of being on fire for God comes that four-part incense of praise, worship, prayer, and intercession that go up out of our heart unto God as a fragrant incense. And you can even see it in the book of Revelation because there was golden bowls that were taken before the throne of God and there was incense coming out of these bowls and it said in Revelation that it was the prayers of the saints. So see, when you and I come together tonight and our hearts are burning for God and we love Him, we're in love with Him and here we are coming together in this place and we begin to praise and we begin to worship and we begin to pray and intercede in this place. It is forming Even though we can't see it with our natural eyes, it is an incense that forms and goes up into God's throne as a fragrant incense unto him. But it comes out of a burning heart. All right, so then you have the left and the right hand. The right hand in the Bible speaks of power. So see, this lampstand really, if you want to sum it up in one word, has a lot to do with the anointing, a fresh anointing. But the left hand is at that communion table, the table of showbread, where there's unleavened bread and there was wine and they had to change it out every week. It was fresh bread, fresh wine. It had to continually be changed out. And it speaks of that communion table. And it's interesting because people know that if somebody is to have a heart attack or something, what hurts? Their left arm and their left hand, right? So there seems to be a connection with that your heart and that left hand but see what god is saying here though is that if you neglect that communion table then it's going to cause the lampstand to go out so in other words if you're going to neglect the communion table where there's a deep consecration unto god There's fellowship with God and everything that's represented in the communion table I'm going to cover over the next several sermons. If you're going to neglect that, then what's going to happen is is the anointing is going to begin to dry up in your ministry. And that fresh revelation is going to stop flowing like it used to. The light that was shining bright is going to begin to get dim. The rhema is going to stop being what it used to be. There's going to be a hindrance in the move of God. And I'll tell you something else. When, it's, when the Lord says he would remove somebody's lampstand, there's a lot of different places where people may gather, and it may have a steeple, it may have some kind of sign, or whatever to indicate that it's a church. But when God has removed your lampstand, you are no longer considered a church by God. Even though people will still keep coming there and they'll still keep praying and worshiping, they're not necessarily a considered a true church in God's eyes. Amen? And I want God to consider River of Life a true church with a lampstand that's burning bright in here. I don't want our lampstand removed. Now, 
And then Hebrews 10:19 says this, "Therefore brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus." All right. It's not going to be your works. It's not going to be your good deeds or any of that that gets you into the presence of God. It's going to be the blood. If you guys catch anything else tonight, make sure you get that. See in the in the outer court area, There was an area where they would kill the sacrifice. They would cut it into five pieces. The blood was shed and the animal was burnt. And it represents what Jesus did at Calvary. But the grate where that animal sat was 1.5 cubics, about three feet high. And that's where the blood was shed in the outer court. And then you go from the outer court, you come into the holy place. And on the right-hand side, remember, there's that table of showbread. And you have the bread and you have the wine and it speaks of the communion table and that wine speaks of the blood. And it's interesting because it's 1.5 cubits high. It's exactly the same. It's about three feet high where that blood is applied. And then, I know once a year the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, but if you were to go into the Holy of Holies and you would see the Ark of the Covenant there and you'd see those cherubim, those angels on each side, that mercy seat, That mercy seat was where the priest would put the blood. He would sprinkle the blood with his finger and that blood would land on that mercy seat and God's glory would come where that blood is and light the place up. But that mercy seat was 1.5 cubits high, about three feet. And so what the message that God is trying to say to us is this, that it is the blood that's going to get you from the outer court into the holy place and it's the blood that's going to get you from the holy place into the holy of holies. That's why personally I like to take communion at the beginning because it gives us a chance to forgive anyone we need to, to confess any sin that we need to, to get anything dealt with that we need to get dealt with and to really get washed and covered fresh in the blood of Jesus. And then as we begin to worship the Lord, man, we just go right into his presence. See, the veil was ripped when Jesus died. We have access to the Holy of Holies. We have access into God's manifest presence by the blood. And when we understand that, it's not how high you jump. It's not how loud you shout. And all those things are fine. I'm all about freedom and praise and worship. But that isn't what gets you into the glory realm. What gets you there is the blood. And there's a warning in the last days about losing your first love and about lukewarmness. Many people have forsaken their first love and they've grown cold spiritually. They're not on fire like they used to be. They're not praying like they used to be. They're not witnessing like they used to be. The fire has gone out in their lives. And I'll tell you that one of the ways the fire can go out is because of neglecting the communion table. Because see, the communion table gives us a chance to really get anything dealt with that we need to, and there's a deep consecration. And I may be getting ahead of myself, and I may say some of these things in other sermons. But see, the priest, it's believed that he would go, whenever he was to go into the Holy of Holies, that he would be burning that incense, and that he would be standing there, that incense is everywhere, and he's standing there pressed up against that curtain, And it was believed by many that God supernaturally transported him from the holy place into the holy of holies. And if that is the case, and I I tend to believe that it probably was, 
But you have to understand that he had already taken care of the blood being shed for his sin and the blood washing things that need to be washed. And he was able to go deep into the Holy of Holies. It's a supernatural thing. As we take communion, we supernaturally move into the deep places of God's presence. Now the communion table is taken out of the Passover Seder meal. Every year, Passover is celebrated. It's in the month of Nisan, in the middle of the month. And this is a time when the yeast is being purged out of people's lives. They, they'll go through their homes, and anything to do with yeast is removed out. And yeast in the Bible speaks of sin. And so you have to understand this to understand what Paul's talking about. And he says here, he's confronting the Galatians. He said, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven, this is yeast, okay, leaven, will leaven the whole lump of dough. So it works through the whole lump, even though it's just a little bit. And he said in verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may have a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, and he's telling this to the Gentile church. He's telling this to the church in Corinthians. Okay, Corinth, I'm sorry. He said to them, Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's telling a Gentile church, you need to keep Passover and you need to, I believe it refers to Passover and the communion table because Passover comes, I'm sorry, the communion table comes out of it. And he's saying you need to do this, but you also need to make sure and purge the leaven out of your midst. And in context there, he was dealing with some people that were in sin and weren't right. And I have seen in River of Life, where God has done this. He's, you know, somebody that's really not going to change and all that. God has purged them out. And I believe the communion table has a lot to do with this. There's a place and a time, according to the Bible, that you have to deal with people. And if people aren't going to repent, they, sometimes they have to be removed from the church. It's unfortunate, but it has to happen. And that's what he was referring to here. But I've seen, as we've kept communion, I have seen where God has purged the yeast out of our midst. And there's people that come before the communion table and they're really sincere and God sees their sincerity and he purges the yeast out of them. But there's other people that maybe aren't sincere and they're not going to repent and God sees that and he'll purge them out of the church. But it's a powerful thing that I believe is connected to the communion table. That there's some kind of a purging that takes place. You guys are quiet tonight. Leviticus 6.25. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, and the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord, it is most holy. So this was the outer court where this represents the cross, where the animals were killed. It represents what Jesus did at Calvary. And he said in verse 26, the priest who offers it for sin shall eat of it. 
and it shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh will be consecrated or holy. Isn't that powerful? That's a picture and type of what we have today in the communion table. The priest would come in. There would be these sacrificial animals. They would, again, they would kill them, cut them into five pieces. They would burn them there. And it was a picture of Calvary. But then the priests were able to eat of that sacrifice. And it's the same as what we're doing today that Jesus went 2,000 years ago. He went to Calvary. He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. He gave his life for us. And as he died in our place, it, it was a sacrifice once and for all. As we take the communion, we're remembering what he did for us. And it's like we're sharing in that altar. We're sharing in that sacrifice fresh. And look at what it says. If Old Testament priests were consecrated and made holy by the flesh of literal animals, how much more of a powerful consecration do you and I think that that has on us as we take communion today? There's a deep consecration that's happening unto us. It's powerful. And as we take of that, the body, what represents the body and blood of the Lord is going down into people's uh, bloodstream into their system and god is consecrating us spirit soul and body as holy unto him it's an awesome powerful thing so the communion table what i want to cover today more than anything else is is that the communion table helps to consecrate us and wash us in the blood and cover us in the blood of jesus and then because of the blood and the fact that we're cleansed like that we're able to go into god's manifest holy presence see what what we've got to understand is this there is a protocol of heaven there is a okay just like for example if royalty was to come you don't break out the paper plates right and the you know the plastic sport forks and spoons and joke around stuff with them you you break out the fine china and you 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 make things in a way that is going to represent the fact that they're royalty and they're coming into your house. So in the same way, there's a protocol of heaven that we want God's presence to come, but God doesn't just put his presence just anywhere. I hope you all understand this. Because I do, I'll be honest when I say I don't believe that the overwhelming majority of people in America have any idea what I'm talking about right here in Christianity at all. Because they read scriptures like, well, where there's two or three gathered He's there in the midst of them. We know that that's true. But you can, two or three Christians can meet at Starbucks and be talking about Jesus, and Jesus is among us. That doesn't mean it's a church. And that doesn't mean that his manifest awesome presence is necessarily manifesting there. Amen? There's a difference. If you want God's awesome manifest presence, there has to be a consecration. And I'm going to tell you that once you set something apart as holy unto God, he will begin to dwell there, but you have to protect that. And it's the same as like this building here. This building has been cleansed spiritually, and the blood is applied. It's a place of worship and prayer, and it's a holy place that's set apart unto God. See, holy means set apart. And so in this place, as the pastor, I'm not going to let people come in here that are going to party and get drunk and do all kinds of abominations. I'm not going to let it happen. Because this is a holy place. Amen? I'm not going to let people come in here and say, well, we want to rent it to do this and have a party here. Forget it. You're not doing that here. This is holy unto God. You can go somewhere else. 
And see, if you begin to, when you set some apart as holy, you have to protect that. And if you will, God's manifest presence will inhabit that place. And we all want the presence of God. Your home and your land can be really consecrated and God's glory can come there. But once God's glory comes there and you, you've consecrated that as holy, you've got to protect that. Once you do that, then you can't come after that and start letting things in that home that have to do with, for example, witchcraft or pornography or whatever other sin and garbage. You start letting that stuff in there. That same glory that came in is the same glory that may turn against you and begin to work against you if you play with the holy things of God. And so God's people, the priest, in Ezekiel 44, verse 23, it says the priests are to teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. That's the responsibility. So when you have a family... And the Bible says all Christians are priests unto God. In Peter, it talks about that. We're all priests. If you go back and really study the scriptures, you'll see how awesome really that statement is. Because it was only the priests that were able to go into God's presence. The other people just simply had to let the priests go on their behalf, and the priests could teach them, but they could never go into God's presence. And so if we really understand how awesome it is that all of us as Christians are able to be considered priests and we're able to minister to God and go into his presence, it really is an awesome honor. But in a family unit, you have like a a husband or a father figure, and they're kind of, everybody there is a Christian is a priest, but they're kind of like a high priest. They have an office of authority. And they're supposed to be teaching their family between what's pleasing to God and what's not. And the same thing in a church. Everybody here is priest. Everybody can minister unto God, but the pastor, there's an office of authority there that it's kind of like a high priest, and we're supposed to be teaching people what's right and wrong, what's holy and what's not, and not to blend the two. God has always hated when his people would take the holy things that were dedicated unto him and use them for unholy purposes. I'll give you a story in the Bible. I may not remember this guy's name exactly. I haven't read this recently, but there was a time that Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he came in and he plundered Jerusalem and he, he burned Solomon's temple and he took all those vessels of gold and everything out of the temple and took it back to Babylon. We all remember this story. Well, his grandson comes along many years later. I don't remember his grandson's name, but he's in there and he's drunk and he's partying with all of his friends and he says, hey, I got an idea. Go get all those vessels that we took from Jerusalem and bring them in here. And let's party with that. And so they go and get all the vessels that were used for God's holy purposes in the temple. And now they're partying with those vessels getting drunk. And here's what happens. (laughs) Bad idea. A floating hand appears in the room. You know it scared this guy so bad. And it began to ride on the wall. It was like mini, mini Tekel Parson, something like that. It wrote on the wall. And he didn't know what it meant, but he knew this is a bad sign, something, this is not good. And so he goes and sends for Daniel, whatever, and he comes. And the interpretation basically was, you have been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. And God judged that man. And the Persians came in and just wiped him out because he took the holy things of God and he used them for those type of purposes. 
And this is what really concerns me about what I see. Probably one of the greatest concerns I have for the body of Christ across this nation anyway. One of the greatest concerns I have is I think that people have lost a holy fear of God. And they they do not know the difference between the holy and the profane. And they're taking things that are holy and they're defiling them. And I really believe that that is an abomination to God. And they don't realize what they're doing. And when we understand our Hebrew roots, which I'm going to be getting deep into for the next several weeks, we understand that there's, there's a holy fear of God and there's things that are set apart as holy unto him. All right, so that leads me to this point. The blessing when Jesus was at the Passover Seder meal and it was after supper, we know that now there was a bread that was broken and hidden in Uh, They took and hid it away somewhere. And in this Passover meal every year, it's usually the little children are able to go run and try to see who can find it. If they find the bread and they bring it back, they get a prize, okay? It's called the afikoman bread. But it's interesting that that bread is hidden. It's like it's buried, but then it's found like it's resurrected. And Jesus took that bread and he held it up and blessed it. And then he, he broke it and gave it to him and said, this represents my body. And he was prophesying, my body is going to be buried and hidden, but it's going to be resurrected and brought back and revealed. And he, but it was interesting because in this culture, whenever the bread was held up, now this is important because it's going to lead into some things we're going to talk about here in a moment. You may have a lot of bread laying around out here, but they understood when you took this bread and you held it up and you blessed it, and this would have been the blessing because this is an ancient blessing. It goes back, back several thousand years, but he blessed it and said this, Blessed you, Lord of God, King of the universe, who's given us the bread from the earth. <clears throat> when he held up that bread and he blessed it and he brought it down and broke it, that bread was now set apart as holy. And that's why this blessing is called the Kiddush blessing because it means sanctification. And then he would have held up the cup, the same thing. He held up that cup and he blessed it in Hebrew and it would have been this blessing, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Bless you, Lord of God, King of the universe, who's created the fruit of the vine. And he blessed it and then he passed it around. But see, what we got to understand is by blessing this and then giving it out like that, he was setting that apart as holy unto God. So let me give you a couple more things. There can be a breakthrough into destiny. So people's heart, let me stop there, people's heart about sanctifying the communion table. You know, wherever you are, it doesn't have to be matzah bread. It doesn't have to be juice, like grape juice. It can be something else, but as long as your heart is really sincere about it and you pray over it, you don't have to necessarily speak that that Kiddush blessing. You can if you want to, but as long as you're really sincere, you set it apart, you bless it. Lord, this is Holy Communion. I set this apart unto you, and you're using it for that purpose, and your heart's in the right place. God's going to bless what you're doing, okay? It's a heart issue. All right, so now the breaking through into destiny. Abraham was told by God, leave your father's house. I will show you where to go and I will bless you. 
And he knew that he was called to be, you know, to father a nation. But for all these years, he had wondered and had not seen this. And I believe it's around 20 years or so, you know, 25 years. He had wondered all these years and he hasn't seen anything happen. But God was with him and God blessed him and made him very wealthy and made him very powerful. And God gave him victories. Remember, he, he uh, gave his wife back who had been taken by Pharaoh into his harem. I mean, that was a major miracle that she got out of there. And then he also gave him great victories against uh, those five kings that he fought. All right, well, after he fought those kings, now think about this. Abraham and his family fought five kings and their armies. Let's really think for a moment how awesome of a victory that right there is, okay? But Abraham defeated those five kings. After he did that, he came back, and, and the king of Salem wanted to reward him. And he told him, he said, I don't want anything from you because I don't want people to think that it was you that made me wealthy or made me blessed. And so, but Abraham, listen to this, Abraham went before a man that we don't know a whole lot about, but this man's name was Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem, and he brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. I'm sorry, the other king that Abraham refused to receive anything from was the king of Sodom, I believe. This man was the king of Salem, but he was a priest unto God. And Melchizedek comes from this word, Melek means king, and Zedek means righteous. So his name means king of righteousness. He's a picture and type of Jesus. And in the New Testament, when you read the book of Hebrews, it says Jesus is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the reason why he's in the order of Melchizedek is because he is a priest, Jesus is, to both um, the Jew and the Gentile that have come in and accepted him as Savior. Now, Melchizedek was a priest unto the Gentiles, but also unto Abraham. Does that make sense? Well, Jew and Gentile. And in verse 19, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and, he, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth. But it's interesting to me that he brought out bread and wine. So Melchizedek, even though this was ancient times, Abram, his name was still Abram. It hasn't been changed to Abraham. He hasn't been given the covenant of circumcision. He's still waiting on the promises of God. And God gave him a great victory. And here he is standing before a priest, a minister. And this priest brings out bread and wine. He brings out the communion table. And him and Abram take communion together. And Abram tithes into this priesthood. He gives a tenth of what he has. And this priest blessed God and then spoke a blessing over Abram. And it's interesting to me that right after this encounter where this priest stood there, they took communion together, and Abram tied to him. But right after they took communion, and that priest blessed Abram, it was right after that, things that seemed to have been locked up in Abram's life for decades, all of a sudden began to happen. God appeared to Abram, and changed his name to Abraham, gave him the covenant of circumcision, and everything started to change right after that. And I remember reading that one time, and God spoke to me, he said, as a pastor... 
as, as an authority figure, if you'll take communion with the people and you'll bless the people, I'll begin to really release people into their destiny and I'll begin to really change them. Isn't that awesome? And there's something about the communion table where we take the Lord's Supper together and there'll be an authority figure like a pastor that will speak a blessing over the people and it will really release something into your life from the Lord. And I've seen that many times where it seemed like people have come and they take the Lord's Supper and you speak a blessing and it seems like they quickly start moving into their destiny and their purpose. So this is the time to examine oneself. I've got two more points. The time to examine oneself. When you went into the tabernacle, you had to look into the laver and wash your hands and feet before you could take communion. And the laver represents the washing of the water of the word of God, the washing your hands and feet. And you can see that, you know, when Jesus was at the Passover Seder and they washed their hands, but Jesus washed their feet. There's a connection there. But anyway, as the priests would wash themselves, what they were doing was they were saying, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I forgive others. You see what I'm saying? It was an examination of yourself. It was a time to look into God's word and the washing of the water of the word, examining yourself before you take communion. But let me tell you some things about communion because unfortunately I think that a lot of churches out there have scared people half to death to where they feel like that they're unworthy to take communion. I've known a few people that actually you know, wouldn't take communion because they felt like, you know, they were unworthy or something. Well, is anybody in this room, including myself, really worthy? You know what I'm saying? None of us are actually worthy to be saved, let alone come in here and think that we're all self-righteous and perfect before God in the first place, okay? So none of us are perfect. The communion table isn't for perfect people. It is for imperfect people. So communion, a couple things about it, it does not have to be at church. Man, that's a big revelation for some people. They think it has to be at church, and they think that a pastor has to administer it. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's adding to the Bible. The communion table is wherever you feel like you want to take communion. And let me tell you something. If you want the glory in your home, take communion in your home. Amen? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. If you want the glory in your family, take communion with your family. Some of you have extended family that, that would be willing to take communion with you. Man, if, you know, if they're Christians or whatever, you take communion, you're bringing the power of the body and blood of the Lord into that whole family. And the glory of God begins to function in that family in an awesome way. Another thing I just mentioned, but it does not have to be administered by a, a minister. It doesn't have to be. Communion, all of us are priests unto God as Christians, and all of us can take communion. It's just a heart issue. And Jesus showed us that it's as often as we desire to do so. But there was a warning about taking it in an unworthy manner. So what does that mean? Well, let me read in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul said this, he said, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Remember, he held it up, he gave thanks, he blessed the bread, then he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. That's why we know it's the third cup of redemption, because it was after the meal. 
and he held it up, he blessed it, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we see these phrases here, as often as you will, as often as you do this. And what that indicates is two things, that there's no limit on how many times you can take communion. Did y'all know that Smith Wigglesworth took communion every day? I didn't know if people knew that. You can take communion every day. You can take it more than once a day. You can take it every week. There's no limit biblically on how often you can take it. And also the word, the fact that the words are often, as often as you will, indicate to a lot of Bible scholars, and I agree with this, that God wants us to take it often. It's not something that's supposed to just be taken once a year. There's a lot of churches out there that take communion maybe once, maybe twice a year. Think about that. And I've had the question one time, somebody asked me this question. So would you think by taking it every week that people would kind of lose the awe and the wonder and how awesome it is? And I can see why they would ask that. But the truth of the matter is, what my experience is, is that the opposite is true. Since we've been taking it frequently, people have fallen in love with the communion table. And there's an awe about it because we see how powerful it is. And actually, the opposite is the truth. It's caused people to really have more of an awe of the communion table. So anyway, verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, so as often as you desire, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner. All right, this means like irreverent, but I'll explain all that here in a moment. She'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself and so doing, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, you don't come together for judgment. And so let me explain this because this isn't going to make sense to River of Life. When these guys came together and they they would have this love feast, there's something called the Oneg Shabbat. And this goes way back in time where there's this celebration on the Sabbath when they were coming together. And it would be kind of like what we would call like a potluck. Everybody came together and really celebrated. And in that, there would be bread and juice for the communion table. But some people, obviously, here in the Corinthian church, which was known for having lots of problems, some people came to church and were really hungry, and they ate all the bread and drank all the juice. And so other people weren't able to take communion. Yeah. And so Paul was saying, if you're hungry, eat at home so you don't come here, and you don't eat up all the matzah bread and drink all the juice in there, and other people can't take communion. That was one of the things that Paul was saying brought judgment. But it's saying in the scriptures here for us to examine ourselves because a couple things. One is that some people are sick and feeble and they're not walking in health because they've neglected the Lord's table. And also, even when communion is administered, they don't rightly discern the power of what is going on. If they really understood that there really is healing in the communion table because we remember by his stripes were healed 
that the weakness and the feebleness and the stuff they're going through in their body really could be healed by the power of what we're doing. They understood that there would be less people that are weak and sick and less people that die prematurely. Does that make sense? So we have to understand, we have to rightly understand what we're doing. There is, listen, communion is not just a dead ritual. There is a power in what you're doing. And I'm hoping by preaching this that it really causes people's faith to just explode because there is healing in the communion table. Many people have been healed while taking communion. And many people have been delivered of things. But that's another sermon I'm going to get into. So here's the judgment. If I were, well, I take communion frequently myself, but, you know, if somebody was to come in here, let me say it this way. And let's say that they were having an adulterous affair on their wife. And they were going out of here, and they, they had no intentions of breaking that off. They were going to go right back to what they're doing. So they're going to come in here, and they're going to take communion, and then they're going to go out and have an adulterous affair. Then they're going to come in next week, take communion, and go right back to that back and forth. Those type of people that refuse to repent are going to drink judgment upon themselves. That is taking communion irreverently. Another story I heard, this is a true story, there was a man that was really rebellious toward the pastor. And this is a true story, but it's a crazy story. They had one of those dramas where they were going to do the Lord's Last Supper in front of the church. And he was one of the disciples that were part of it, you know. Anyway... He was really a rebellious person in the church and caused a lot of problems, and he really came up against the pastor a lot. It was like a a male Jezebel spirit. And he was always causing problems. And recently, he had been causing a lot of problems. And the pastor was telling him, you need to calm down, quit doing this. There was, In fact, there was somebody that came to him before the play and told him, you really need to stop what you're doing and repent. And And he got mad and said, mind your own business. I'm right I'm not going to change my view about this. And he was real defiant. So they get up there, true story. They get up there and they're, they're going through this play and they're really taking the Lord's Supper. This man drank the cup and fell over dead in the church right there. I mean, it's a true story, man, verified. So you can drink judgment on yourself when people are playing around with the holy things of God and they're not going to take a moment to really say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. And, Lord, if I've had anything against anyone, I forgive them. But you you examine yourself. But here's the last point about that. I don't want people to be afraid of the communion table. If you've had struggles throughout the week, the communion table is there to help you through the struggles. The communion table is not there for people to be scared. It's there, Jesus is saying, come to me, and I'll help you. And if somebody is sincerely just saying, Lord, You know, this week I struggled in some areas. Forgive me. He forgives us. Amen? And the Bible says we confess our sin. He's faithful to wash us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can come before the table and say, Lord, do a deep consecration in me. Empower me. Change me. And the Lord will help us. And so I don't want people to ever be afraid of the communion table. That somehow, man, I'm imperfect. I didn't have a good week this week. I struggled in some areas. If I take this, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave out of here and just drop dead. It's not, that's not how it works. 
Okay, these, these are people that, that are um, unrepentant in their sin and that are defiant. Yeah, they can bring judgment on themselves. But I don't believe anybody here tonight is that way. All right. And here's the last thing I want to say about a religious spirit. In Matthew 24, 1 through 4, Jesus said this. He came out of the temple and his disciples came up to him and pointed at the temple and they said to him, do you see, and Jesus said, do you see all these things? Truly I tell you that not one stone will be left on another which will not be thrown down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And listen to what Jesus said to them. They said, Jesus, tell us about the end times. And the very first thing Jesus says is, see to it that no one deceive you. And I've preached a lot on this, but there's going to be and already is a lot of deception in the end times. So I gave you these scriptures, but let me read them to you. I'm going to tell you something very important. I want you all to really hear this last point. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul said this. He said, but the Holy Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. We're seeing people fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits or seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. This is in the Bible. And then it says in verse 2, by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You ever, you guys ever do any cooking and you sear something? You throw it on a hot skillet and let it sear and then flip it over and sear the outside? And the Bible's saying here that there's people that their consciences have been seared, meaning that they no longer are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction anymore. They've been hardened. Listen to this. Here's the description. Verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from, from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in, in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, y'all say everything. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it, if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. It's talking about food. So I read this and the Lord really put on my heart to share this. In the latter days, there's going to be people that are falling away from the faith. There's going to be deceiving demons. It says right there in the Bible, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And listen to the description. Hypocritical liars who forbid marriage. All right, when you read that, you automatically have to think about how the Catholic Church forbids its clergy from marrying. Whereas the Bible, it encourages marriage for each man to have his own wife. Amen? Anybody else read these scriptures? And so it's like goes totally against the Bible, but here's the thing. When I was reading this, there's a warning about a religious spirit. And man, I really feel this strong as I'm sharing this. This is a strong warning for the body of Christ. God does not want us in these last days to get sucked into a religious spirit. And one of the things that you see is like, for example, with the Catholic Church, I believe that Paul somehow, by the Holy Spirit, looked like through a spiritual telescope down through the last 2,000 years, and he saw the end times, and he prophesied by the Holy Spirit that these things would be going on. And he said that basically there would come some, some people who would try to release doctrines of demons and seducing spirits to take the people of God away and seduce them away from Jesus. And it's a religious spirit. And he talked about, first off, those that forbid marriage. So what you have 
is you have groups like the Catholic Church and maybe Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and other cults and maybe those that are not necessarily cults but they are like a real high church like Episcopal and Anglican and others that there's there's such a religious spirit it's a real high church thing and many of the people that go to these churches unfortunately really don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ it's just a religious experience do you hear where I'm coming from because if just because you go to church does not mean you're going to heaven you can go to hell owning your own big giant bible you can go to hell but if you sing in the choir you can go to hell even with a communion wafer in your mouth and you can go to hell with baptismal water still dripping off your face it's not religion that's going to save you it is faith in jesus in a new birth and coming in covenant with god and so there's got to be that relationship and that's what i'm concerned because i see that there's a group out there that it's real high church and it's based more on works and by going to church, people think that they're saved because they're doing their little religious duty. But that's not going to save you. You've got to have a relationship with God. There's a difference. And then it says, abstaining from certain foods. And there you're dealing with Judaism. Kosher. That people say you have to eat a certain way, you know. And God knew that in the latter times that there would be movements And I love the Hebrew roots so much, and you guys know that, but you have to keep this thing biblical, all right? And there's groups out there that are basically trying to pull the body of Christ back into Judaism. And that is exactly what Paul dealt with when he wrote the book of Galatians and said, do not do that. That's bondage, okay? So, and then Paul goes on to describe it. He said, everything God's created is good nothing's to be rejected he's talking about food your food is sanctified by the word of god in prayer but see there's people out there that want to pull the body of christ back into judaism where they feel like that they have to obey the same law of moses that the children of israel did before jesus christ or you're not saved and you're not going to heaven and this was an early church issue so we're dealing with a religious spirit does this make sense Something's trying to pull people away. But see, what, when we come into Christ, we're free. See, what the law of Moses was a shadow of things to come. Meaning this, there's so many different examples for the sake of time. I'm just going to pick a couple. The tabernacle. You know, I have a picture over there, but the tabernacle of Moses. This was a dwelling place for God's presence. And everything that was there, it was powerful. It was what God was doing at that time. But you had to bring the animals. There was the washing of the water. And there was the priest going in. All that was there. The burning incense. But now the Bible says we are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. We. See they had the law of Moses was a shadow. But we have the fullness in Christ. We have the actual substance. The law brought us to Jesus. But we have the fullness in him. So we're not going back to that. That'd be like, for example, going to a high church somewhere and they're like, well, you have to burn incense. And where you just came from a church like River of Life where you're worshiping God from your heart. And Jesus said the time would come when true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And here's your praise and worship, your prayer and intercession. It's in spirit and in truth. It's from a burning heart. It's an incense unto God. And then somebody's going to grab you and say, no, you need to quit doing that. You need to calm that down. You need to come in here. 
and you need to do it this way. You need to burn some kind of Old Testament incense unto God. How ridiculous would that be? But yet in many other ways, that's in essence what's going on. It's bringing people back under a bondage that they're not supposed to be under anymore. We have the fullness in Christ. So let me just read this. I'm hoping this makes sense tonight. I'm hoping I'm doing a good job explaining this, but it's a concern. All right. There were God-fearing Gentiles who attended the synagogues and worshipped the God of Israel and were some of the first to accept Jesus Christ when they heard the gospel. You read about that in the Bible, like, for example, Acts 8, 27, 10, 2, 10, 22, 13, 26, 13, 15, 17, 4. The message that Paul was preaching was good news now indeed, and that now through the gospel, the, Jew, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of the Messiah Jesus in Ephesians 3, 6. So the Gentiles were becoming spiritual equals to the Jews, without having to become a Jew. They didn't have to convert to Judaism. Does this make sense? This, however, was troubling some of the Jewish believers who insisted that full membership in a God's household required that they be circumcised and they fully submit to the Torah, teaching that, and this is Acts 15.5, a quote, that Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And Paul's letter to the Galatians strongly confronted this issue. To the contrary, Peter stated, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we've been saved just as they are, in Acts 15, 11. The final apostolic verdict was simply this. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them, remember I preached on this last week, abstain from idolatry, sexual immorality, and blood. He's talking about the meat of strangled animals, but I'll explain that here in a moment. The Apostle Paul taught Gentile believers the most fundamental things like moral purity, relational purity, work ethics, and family ethics, since he didn't assume that they already knew these things. But on, on the other hand, he never told them, you must submit yourselves to the Torah or to the law. As Gentiles, they were not required to do so. And as believers in Jesus who had entered the reality of the age to come, just like their fellow Jewish believers in Jesus, they stood in an entirely different relationship with Torah, meaning it has been fulfilled in Jesus. We don't have to go back under law. Is this making sense tonight? God has finished that. And what he's talking about, the meat of strangled animals, is under, even to this day, the Jewish people that, that kill the animals, they're called a shochet, and what they do is they cut the throat and turn the animal upside down and drain all the blood that they can out, and then they, they chop up the animal and sell the meat because they're against eating blood. And he was saying there that you're not supposed to be eating blood. So that's what that's talking about. So we talked about that last week. I don't want to get back into all that, but my point is don't allow a religious spirit to pull you away from Jesus. Let's stay free in Jesus. Amen? And I want to do one thing, and we're going to pray tonight. Sandy, bring me that um, prayer shawl. And Christopher, can you help me with this? Thank you, brother. Thanks. And Brianna, too. Y'all come on up. I want to show y'all this. So this picture for a moment, I'm going to represent Jesus. And everywhere Jesus went, he would have had a prayer shawl. It probably wouldn't have been exactly like this. I think they were more like a tunic back then. But anyway, he would have had a prayer shawl on. And now, if everybody can see me, I'm going to get my pretty wife, my assistant, my lovely assistant, to come help me right now. Come on in. 
And because, and I'm, I'm making a point with this, and then my daughter as well, that obviously my, my wife is, is older than my daughter, and the point is that Israel has had a relationship with God longer than really the Gentiles have. Does that make sense? All right. When um, Jesus came, anybody that no longer believed in Jesus, they were branch, uh, I'm sorry, they rejected Christ. They were branches that were broken off. Remember that? But see, there were Jewish people that believed in Jesus, but there were also Gentiles that were coming to the faith, and they were all being um, in that olive tree. And so when the Jew and the Gentile come into Jesus, they're on equal footing. Nobody's better than the other. The Bible says that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. So there's not any of this hierarchy there. And God has given us now in this church age the fivefold ministry. And I'm kind of, I love different groups that are out there. I love hearing different things. But to be honest, there's, there's certain groups that I'm a little tired of hearing them say all the time. And the rabbis and the sages and these groups say this. You know, that's fine. But listen, God's given us the fivefold ministry for the equipping of the saints. We're in a dispensation of the church right now. Amen. All right. So whenever Israel, if there's a Jew or a Gentile that comes in. All right, here we go. Y'all come in. Yep, y'all work with me. See, I'm worried about their hairdo. You see that? All right, and you wrap them up like this. They're not cooperating. But you can't really see which one will be a Jew or Gentile anymore, can you? If somebody was to come in and I could adequately do this, um, you wouldn't be able to know who was who. Because once you come into Jesus, Jew or Gentile, you're in Christ. You're one in him, whether you're Jew or Gentile. And we're one body. The, the partition between the Jew and the Gentile has come down in Jesus, and we're one in him. Amen? All right, thank you guys.